0: <laughs>
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Forgecast. My name's Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor.
2: The Forgecast is brought to you thanks to your boy's favourite place to get abrasives from in Australia, Weber Abrasives. Rob's got it all, so hit him up at abrasives.on.net today to stock yourself up.
1: So Sam, what have you
2: been up to this week?
1: (laughs) Beat me to it. Um, Yeah, Uh, working on hammers mostly. Um, Trying to get a whole bunch of hammers done. Uh, got two handles done this afternoon. I've got five more to go. a couple of uh, so three English cutlers, three French cross and a Viking cro- uh, and a Viking cross mm. um, Also did a forge welded wrought iron and 1084 Viking cross for my live stream. Came which i so good. Yeah, I'm currently working on inla- inlaying into that. I'm waiting for some sterling silver wire to be delivered so that I can do some sterling silver inlay and uh, going to do some fancy, fancy schmancy Viking style stuff, which is going to be fun. Yeah. Um But yeah, other than that, it's just mostly been mostly been hammer work. Um, and I've also been setting up for my frogs. I have a pair of tadpoles. One of them is now pretty much a frog. Um, and so I've been setting up their terrarium, getting that all sorted Um, but I have also been tooling up and I recently came into possession of a kiln, a very small, uh, originally glassware kiln, um, that had only been used three times.
2: (laughs) Only taken on the highway by a little old lady.
1: That's it. Yeah. So the little old lady who purchased it five or six years ago to do glasswork, used it three times and then put it in storage. Uh, (laughs) and she still had all the paperwork and everything. So, um, yeah, I got it for a steel. and, um, so yeah, all I need to do is fit that up with a PID controller, and I'll have a temperature-controlled kiln, which is something that I've been wanting for a long time. Mm. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's, that's pretty much been everything, I've just, yeah, I've been slugging it out with, with large billets of steel, uh, I did make some Damascus, and, uh, ...the like last week, which I end up sending uh, a three-pound billet to you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which <laughs> for which your birthday. put me to shame with the tiny little billets <laughs> I've been making. <laughs> well, I knew how much you needed Damascus recently, so <laughs> I figured oh, yeah. that would help you out. Um, but I did make another billet with that, and I've got another billet to make in the future. Um I remembered that uh, actually the billet that I sent you is a mixture of 1075, 10, uh, 15 and 20 and 1084, so... oh, Yeah. So it's got it's some... Three
2: uh, different steels. Yeah, so it's
1: 1075 and 10, uh, 15 and 20 for the dem- for the main uh, thin layer Damascus, and on the first weld cycle I put three layers of 6 mil 1084 in there. So it should have some really dark layers, some slightly grey layers, and some really really bright layers. So it should look really good. Very cool when it's etched up. Uh, came out at like 192 layers, I think, at the end. Um, but yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. I also ended up getting a Fordham uh, VSR. Yeah, join uh, the club. To, yes, thanks to one of my fantastic patrons and Twitch viewers and overall supporters, Ed Soul. Uh, he actually purchased for it for me off my Amazon wish wishlist. Uh, much to my chagrin, because I, <laughs> I originally made that list only with intending to make note of what I wanted for the future, but uh, I am very appreciative that he purchased that for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to putting it into use. Unfortunately, it has all U.S. connections, because hmm. it's, a, it's a U.S. model. It's made in Connecticut. Um, and so I have to get a Transformer to be able to use it on our system... A because the plugs don't fit, and B because it's 110 volt, not 240. But uh, once I get the transformer, I'll be able to <laughs> do some serious carving, and that gives me time to make a bracket that I'm going to hang from my wall, so that I can, you know, swing it around and not have to, you know, hold the whole thing up by the hand by hand.
2: Wait, you're not uh, going to tie it dodgily to the ceiling with paracord like I did with mine. <laughs> well, I,
1: I would, but I don't have any ceiling beams. <laughs>
2: that way, you get the joy when you when you crank it, it actually spins because of the gyroscopic forces.
1: <laughs> no, I think I'll I think I'll get all fancy and forge myself a like a, a swinging bracket that can like fold into the wall. Fair enough. Uh, you know, got to be got to be fancy about these things yeah that's that's pretty much it how about you oh before i jump on to the next thing i was about uh, to sass you the song of the week yes uh, my song of the week this week i've been again going back through all of the t- classics and we were talking i was talking with my twitch channel a couple of days ago about um like really old classic songs and the subject of american pie came up by don oh, yeah. mclean yeah And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's a great song. But my favorite song by him is Vincent. Um, Which some people know as Starry Starry Night, but the actual song name is Vincent. Right. And it's funny because it is a fantastic song. Very emotive. And it's funny because so many people don't realize that he, that the guy who sung American Pie, sung that too. Hmm. <laughs> so, the voice is so distinctive, though. I know, but it's the amount of people that are surprised by it when I tell them. I'm, they're like, "I'm like, what? Well, how can you not tell?" <laughs> um, but apparently, it's a thing. Anyway, so yeah, Vincent by Don McLean um, is one of my favorite uh, songs of his, and uh, definitely deserves a spot on the list. How about yourself, Alex? How are you doing? Well, I had
2: um, Frankie die on me, as people would know. Um, But the people who sent the new VFDs did a really good job. I got it only in a few days, so that's quite good. Um, But I did, uh, as the listeners will be pleased to know, uh, follow our own advice. And when I lost the ability to use my grinder, I made use of the time. I didn't just sit there... (laughs) twiddling my thumbs I was doing things that I did not need a grinder for Uh, so handle scale prep and making a bunch of knife blanks heat treated uh, stocking up things that I made to order on my etsy and basically uh, not being idle in that meantime as much as it sucked it does feel like like you're a bit of an amputee with the the grinder missing when especially when it's such a core part of your production um, when you do that for your living Uh, yeah absolutely I did order two replacement VFDs so that I can have one on hand. Um, I could just buy an, a good quality VFD, but it's actually cheaper this way. <laughs> they tend yeah. to last me about 10 to 12 months. <laughs> yep. So, um, yeah, he's back now and I've been making up for lost time. Um, I've got five new folders on the on my workbench at the moment that I'm pumping out. I know I've got some um, custom orders and things to do, but I need to make up for the lost time um and it's good uh, good practice for me as well especially since i'm working on my video course um in the um while i've been doing this i've actually been teaching my wife nissa how to make um friction folders first she wants to make all sorts of folding knives but i'm starting her on friction folders as should anybody who's getting into folding knives absolutely um and I'm going to give her a little bit of a husbandly shout out here. She's got an Instagram now. It's Nissa Blade Works, all one word, so N I S S E Blade Works, um, on Instagram where she's showing her uh, her learning journey. Um, but she's actually put out her first knife making product, which is actually now being sold by our lovely sponsor Nordic Edge. Mm-hmm. Um, she's designed. Uh, it was it was after me whinging at her. Um, long enough that she actually made a solution to my problem um, and yeah there's sort of assembly mats for knife makers yeah. um, which are, I think really really cool and um, it was a bit of a proud moment for me to actually see them up on the Nordic Edge website um, and find out, I had a lot of people messaging me saying that they'd bought one or two or some people had bought three so uh, or one person did at least um, so yeah it was, it was pretty cool to see that happening a um, bit of a moment. Yeah, um, I, I, I bought three before they even got stocked. That's right. <laughs> Sam's a hipster when it comes to knife making gear. That's it. I did it before. It was cool. Yeah. Uh, but one of the um, knife mats is named after Sam. Uh, no, it's, it's not true. the Fudgery guy <laughs>
1: <laughs> No. Although it's you doubt we now have Fudrigar merch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> available all proceeds and people proceeds go have been to
2: buying it. Funding the show and uh, the the show
1: and yes, people have been buying it. So <laughs> <laughs> I've had several people message me going, "Hey, I bought some stickers or I bought a shirt." And I'm like, "Oh yeah. god, here we go. The fudrigar lives." I'm just I'm waiting for the first time that someone walks up to me wearing that shirt. <laughs> At a knife show or something. <laughs> like, I or you recognize should... you as a Fordcast, like as a drew. Force a <laughs> uh,
2: but um, yeah, the biggest one. I don't use it personally, um, but I, I, we had the the normal size one, and then a folder folder sized one for me. Um, and then I thought about sam's like giant muso (laughs) buoys and i'm like i think think never. remember
1: us having the conversation of me going there's no way that my normal knives will fit on that (laughs) yeah i'm like
2: well we're making a stupid big one and Bjorn actually got on board with the if you have you read the product description on the website
1: it's hilarious (laughs) it's really funny
2: yeah so um yeah that was that was cool um and i've been making some We're starting to get the first nigglings of some plans for that giant chunk of Damascus that you sent me for my birthday, which (laughs) was super, super cool. There's there's, um, three things that you can always please me with on my birthday. And one is Bunnings vouchers. Mm -hmm. One's Lego. I'm a huge Mm -hmm. Lego fan. Uh, And another is Damascus. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Love me some Damascus. And uh, so I'm starting to get some plans for that. Um, of course, it came after I'd spent two days straight making Damascus billets. Um, and it is about eight times larger than the biggest one that I made during yeah, those two probably, days.
1: It's, it's probably the same weight as
2: all of your billets combined. <laughs> it's heavier. I weighed it. <laughs> <laughs> Just slightly go. heavier. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to playing with that because I hate making Damascus and I hate making higher layer Damascus um, and 192 layers in Alex Land is pretty high layer. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Sam was nice enough to actually just keep it straight layer so I can just cut off chunks and reforge (laughs) it how I see fit. Yeah, pretty much. And I to be pretty chunky. Super fun. I'm looking forward to it, especially now I've got a press. (laughs) So um, my song of the week is um, a little bit of a somber one, not as fun and upbeat as my songs usually are, Um, but it's one that would strike a chord with or pluck the heartstrings of anybody who's ever either themselves or somebody close to them gone through um, struggles with drug addiction. Hmm. Um, and it's by uh, one of my favorite bands, the Bare Naked Ladies. <laughs> and the song is War on Drugs. It's um very, very moving song, and it builds brilliantly. Like, just from a musical perspective, it builds phenomenally and ends really, really well. Uh, it starts super soft and gentle, but the crescendo is huge. Um, but, yeah, it, it, I think it really highlights... Uh, the, the realities of, I mean, society tends to just see, oh, drug addict, well, that's a no-hoper and cast mm. them aside and they don't ever stop to realise the, you know, the, the, the real hurt that those people are going through and um, the, the escape that they're trying to, to, to get and uh, the song really captures it, I think in a really sort of human way and it's always, always stuck with me Cool so, Yeah Good to finally add a bit of bare naked ladies to the list. If it has <laughs> not has it been already, I don't think so. I can't. I'm remember I'm surprised. Off the top of my head. I'd, I'd be surprised if I haven't yet added uh, if I had a million dollars to the list. That's a great song. Yeah,
1: no, I haven't heard that one on the list. I don't think. All
2: right, you know that song? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's a great song. <laughs> it is. I love that song. But, been a while uh, since I
1: listened to some bare naked ladies, so
2: yeah, they're actually very very regular on my on my rotation. I um. I'm a big, big fan have been since like the 90s.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Which doesn't sound, and I say that and I'm like, that wasn't that long ago. Like but the 90s were 67 years ago. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, ages um, ago. Yeah, no. But um, we do have a couple of listener emails, or we can do our inspirations first. What do you reckon?
1: I'll leave this one up to you. What do you want to do?
2: Yeah, because every time I ask you, you always say list your emails first. Pretty much. So I'm going to shake it up. Who's been inspiring
1: you this week? Oh, <laughs> ah, well, um, I, I figured you would say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no. There's no tr- excitement
2: in the marriage anymore, Sam. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jeez. Jeez. The, we're past the honeymoon period. It's a shame. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, my inspiration this week is someone I'm pretty sure I've used as an inspiration of the week once before, a long time ago. Or if I didn't, then I bloody well should have. Um, and I'm not sure if he's in the ABS, but I know that he makes Master Smith quality stuff. Uh, and when I say that, I say that without any, you know, any kind of vitriol. It's literally just he makes master smith quality work and that is uh Salem Straub. Mmm. I think you have used him before. Uh yeah, would have been, would a, have long been a long time, time, ago. time ago. Yeah. Yeah, back in the early days of uh inspiration of the week, but uh he is mentor to Will Stelter, previous forged in fire champion and all around complete fucking madman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the work that he does with Damascus is scary. Like Um, He's recently started uploading to his YouTube channel, uh, Salem Straub, and his Instagram handle is the same, Salem Straub, all one word, S-A-L-E-M-S-T-R-A-U-B, Salem Straub. Um, But he has done a series of videos on his hexagon Damascus, in which he milled and shaped hexagonal bar of Damascus. And then Mosaic tiled that together <laughs> with flat bars and created a pattern out of it. And it's insane. Like, the weld, the, the weld shear lines on that thing, the amount of opportunities that thing has to break in the welding, and he managed to pull it off. Um, he is an incredibly, uh, you know, kind of uh, unassuming guy. He's not very bombastic, not loud or anything like that, but his work speaks huge volumes uh, and I've I've followed him for a long time since before he was on Forged in Fire um, and he does, he always likes to push the boundaries on what's done uh, one of his more recent projects was a uh, kitchen knife which was ebony uh, ebony handled, it was an integral mosaic pattern Damascus blade pretty standard for him, but the handle, were, uh, he actually milled out Uh, triangular sections of an ebony handle and inlaid, instead of like inlay, it's actually multi-section, like it's not inlaid in the surface, it's literally all the way through like a keyhole, um, of, I believe it's walnut or cherry, it looks amazing. Right. Uh, And the amount of effort that went into it And one of the things that really grabbed my attention was a dagger that he made a while ago, which had. Like, it had a hollow basket handle. uh, But it wasn't like a basket twist. Each individual tine in the handle that made up the basket was Damascus and was hand filed and fitted. (laughs) And, like, the guard was Damascus. The blade was. Oh, my God. Like, if you go through his Instagram feed, you will just lose your mind with the amount of detail that he puts into his work. Yeah. and he's and like one of the things that really inspires me about Salem is that he's constantly pushing the boundaries. He doesn't find something that he's comfortable with and stay there. Well, that's he's, how you get better, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. He's constantly pushing the envelope going how where, where how can I take this further? How can I make this more insane? how can I make this look even cooler? And, you know, like everything he comes out with, I'm always just kind of like, how, why, <laughs> why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, definitely worth a check out. And, uh, that's Salem Straub on Instagram and on YouTube and on his YouTube videos. He actually goes through how he, you know, works out what pattern he's going to do and stuff like that. So it's really useful to watch that as well. If you're interested in making patterns, um, so, yeah, he's he's just an incredible smith. And, um, yeah, I hope to meet him one day. That would yeah. be cool. Maybe we'll get him on the show. Yeah. But uh, who's been inspiring you this week, Alex?
2: Probably a person who's been inspiring a lot of people uh, recently with something that has been technically two years in the making, really. Um, mm. But it didn't take him two years to make it, but it took him two years to get to the level... He was at to make it. And um, I'm ashamed, Sam, as a Tasmanian, that I have not shouted this guy out before. Um, <laughs> young fella makes me feel so old <laughs> repeatedly. Um, only 20, and his name's mm-hmm. Jason Ellard. Um, he recently put out an integral mosaic feather chef knife. With a frame style saya and a specialized, special made stand of ringed Gigi that is breathtakingly amazing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And from if if you were to look at it with no knowledge of knives whatsoever, you would have your breath taken away. But as somebody who makes knives, looking at like every aspect of that build. You look at it and you try and break down into the steps it would have taken to get that. And you think the work, (laughs) the work and the chances for failure. Mm -hmm. And this is just a bit like Salem in that it's just he has pushed himself and pushed himself to come up with this creation.
1: Jason is one of those just insane people. Like I had the opportunity to hang out with him uh, for Blade Symposium. And he, he has no off switch. That, there, are, that kid is, there are cocaine was,
2: addicts with less
1: energy than that kid. <laughs> and the, the thing is that he's constantly, like you said, he's constantly seeking improvement. I personally hate him. Because, <laughs> like, he, he was a hammer maker for a number of years, for a couple of years. And then you decided to pick up knife making. And within mm-hmm. two years, he was making Mosaic Damascus. Mm-hmm. And he's had no training. Like, he has none, no classes with any other Smith. He has just been doing this by himself, learning as he goes, all with manual fly press. Like, he doesn't have a hydraulic press or a power hammer. Mind
2: you, the energy that he swings that fly press with, it's its like a, it's, I think it's like a seven ton, but he yeah, must is, get yeah. nine to ten out of that thing. Because he's, <laughs>
1: he's pushing its limits.
2: Oh, he's like throwing it around like it's a, you know, BJJ opponent. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, yeah. Coming up his, with crazy crank devices to do twist, twisted yeah. billets and things. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And his mosaic hammers are pretty cool as well. Oh, like, they really? With are. The, I hate the fact that he's decided to now start putting mosaic Damascus inlays in the tops of the eyes of the hammers. Hmm. Like just, to, like just to add that extra fuck you element to the hammer. <laughs> <laughs> the the kid is amazing
2: he's um 10 times the knife maker i believe i could ever hope to be and he's only been doing it for a couple of years and he has
1: more knife making talent than alex and i combined in his fucking single hand yeah in in,
2: uh, i I think his his workshop assistant christopher the possum probably has more just from
1: (laughs) you know like osmosis from being (laughs) near him
2: um and he's also he's a funny guy too like he's a he's a delight to watch his instagram stories and things but um i'm glad there's a like a whole island between he and i because otherwise (laughs) i'd just be like psyched out constantly to be out putting out anything at all Mm. um but this particular knife that he made and i he got a, a friend who's into videography to do a really cool video um sort of showing it off in a really nice way a way that commemorate commemorated it in a, a, a sort of worthy way because it's one of those things when you make something like that you can see that thing's got presence mm-hmm. and a photo is just not good enough to show that sort of thing off so um yeah, if you for some reason do not follow Jason yet, I highly recommend giving his Instagram a follow. Um, he's on Facebook as well. Uh, on Instagram, he's just lard blacksmithing, all one word: e double l a r d blacksmithing. I mean, he's followed by everyone. All the big names follow him because they're all waiting to see what this kid does next. Alex Steele yeah, follows don't... him. Carl Royer follows him. Like, who doesn't? Yeah,
1: well. I mean if this is the quality of work that he's making now at twenty mm. Yeah. Like where do you go? <laughs> like, yeah, I know where right where you go from there. <laughs> Look out, Kyle. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> a little boy from Tasmania's chasing your heels. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I just, I, like I I've I've had this conversation with a number of times with Alex that I'll I'll see a post from Jason and I'll say, Where the hell does he find the time? Yeah, <laughs> like the amount of the amount of stuff that he comes out with at the quality that he makes, mm. I I swear to Christ he doesn't sleep like at all. He just spends twenty four hours seven days a week in the shop.
2: I have a theory, Sam. <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
2: I have a theory that he is actually quadruplets, <laughs> identical <laughs> quadruplets, and we only ever see one at a time.
1: Yeah, one day he's gonna make a mistake and go to one more than one knife show on the same day. That's right. <laughs> like, oh, there's actually four of them working together as a team. It's like no. Kaz
2: knives times two.
1: That would that would explain that would explain the level of quality and quantity that he manages to come out with. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise right. it just means that I'm being really slack and that makes me feel bad.
2: I had to pick something up the other day and I got puffed out. <laughs> So, yep. <laughs> Yeah, this kid, then I, then I, you know, I sat down because I was puffed out and I opened Instagram and see Jason planking on top of his fly press. <laughs> or doing backflips
1: um, while, <laughs> off while of, smashed off his face. Yeah. At, um, off, <laughs> off, off, a, off a little uh, pew. It was off an anvil uh, or something, wasn't it? No, no, it was just a just a log at um, at Blade Symposium. <laughs> yeah, but not uh, yeah, Jason makes me
2: feel older than anybody else. Makes me feel old, and um, I I admire him more and more the more of his work that I see. And uh, despite being on the same island, I have not yet met him in person. But I hope to one day because I have some things I need to give him. Mm-hmm. So um, some products that he wants to test. And he wants to check out my beamish anvil as well. Yeah, cool. Which I've been saying that
1: he should absolutely get. Jason uh, is is an anvil fanatic. He has more anvils than most people in Australia. Yeah. But uh, Mm -hmm.
2: that's why I had such a hard time finding one down here. Jason's got Mm -hmm. them. He's just got warehouses full of
1: them. (laughs) That's why he doesn't have space for a power hammer. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Because his workshop's just full of anvils. He just throws anvils at the work. That's his power hammer. Yep,
2: that's it. Anyway, let's get some listener emails out of the way. Our first one is from Rich Larson, and he says, Hi, guys, love the podcast, and all the help you give was wondering if you had any tips on knife handle design. I know you have discussed some materials and finishes in the past. Maybe you could do a podcast on handle theory. How do you pick a shape to match the blade? How do you keep it symmetrical? How do you keep the lines crisp? I see lots of YouTube videos on forging and grinding, but not on handle design and shaping. As half of the knife and the part that you hold onto, it seems handle geometry would be discussed before. uh, Discussed more, sorry. Uh, Maybe I am looking in the wrong places. Keep up the great work, Rich. Mm. It's an excellent question, and it is definitely a topic that we could talk about at length. Um, But the simple fact about it is that to a certain extent, a, a large percentage of handle design uh, is the same across all knives mm. because hands are all kind of more or less the same. There's a certain yeah, and- amount of artistic play you can take with them, obviously. But
1: yeah, uh- one, of, one of the hardest parts is the fact that it's like it comes down to context. You know, mm. it depends. Uh, you know, you could do an entire video on how to design a Bowie knife handle. But that would be completely useless when designing a, a hunting knife. hunting knife or a paring knife or a chef's knife or, you know, any number of other knives. All of them will have different, different handle to blade ratios, different handle sizes, different handle profiles. And one of the other issues, of course, being that we are a podcast and it's all audio, is that there's no visual representation we can give you here. Like, we can talk about you need this size, yada, yada. But without a visual representation, I think it's going to be really hard to get the point across.
2: What I like to, because having uh, taught a few people, like I had them in my workshop and had them with a raw block of wood and had them have to take it down to a handle. Um, I've always started with saying that it's like sculpting. The statue is in the block of marble. You just mm-hmm. it's a, It's a removing process until you find it. Um, if you take a block of wood, it's very easy to tell where the hot spots are when you grab it. <laughs> uh, so you start working those down until they're not hot spots anymore, and then this, the, you'll find new hot spots, but they'll be slightly less obvious, very, very slightly less obvious. And then you take those down, you keep going and keep going, and how far you can go until there are no hot spots left in the use of that knife, which is the key factor here in the use of that knife. Um, comes down to your skill as a, you know, wood shaper, basically. Yeah. Um, because if you're making a paring knife handle, you're not going to be using it for chopping. So the hot spots that would form on a knife that is actually having impact done to it uh, is, are going to appear in different places to the hot spots of something that you're going to do repeated slicing motions with. So it comes down to in the use of it. So the first part of shaping is getting it down to that rough uh, kind of hand-like proportions. But then after that, it's going to be a matter of um, finding those hotspots in use. Yeah.
1: Which comes down to
2: just sort of training, practicing.
1: And and some of it is aesthetics, you know, like some of the time you're going to be worrying about how it looks. Mm. And in that case, a lot of it comes down to just looking at it from a profile, draw the blade on a piece of paper, like trace the blade and the tang on a piece of paper and draw a bunch of handle designs. Go and look at a whole bunch of photos of other people's work and take notes from those and, you know, kind of draw designs that are similar to that and work out what looks good in your eye and then make it, make it out of a block of pine.
2: And if you are looking at somebody else's knives, don't just look and say, Oh, I think that's cool. Try and ask yourself, why did they make that choice? What about Mm. it? um, Like uh, one of my um, past inspirations of the week, Yela Hasenberg, his knives have some of the most unique looking handles you can get. Oh, yeah. Um, But you'll notice that the flow, in terms of the overall flow of the design, he is a big fan of brute de Forge finishes Mm -hmm. on his knives. The brute de Forge section of the knife directly flows from the shape of the handle. They mirror each other. Um, and yeah. he does this on every knife. There is no functional purpose to that, but it is his his aesthetic look.
1: Yeah, and um, one of the things that uh, Master Smith, Sean McIntyre, told me when I was at Blade Symposium, um, when he was doing a, design, a blade design course, uh, blade and handle design course, uh, part of Symposium, mm-hmm. was that uh, if you have a handle idea, grab yourself a cheap two-by-four Cut a section off and make the handle. Mm. Right? Don't make a blade for it. Don't make the hole for the tang. Just make the handle. And make a dozen of them of different shapes and sizes and thicknesses and stuff. Make two of the same, but make one narrower than the other. You know, try different sizes of pommel or whatever. Get a whole bunch of handle shaping out of the way and feel each handle in your hand. Hold it reverse grip. Hold it forward grip. You know, hold it backhanded um, and get a feel for, you know, like make handle designs that you've seen online so that you get a feel for what they feel like in the hand. Um, Because at the end of the day, that's going to be the most important thing.
2: Yeah. And your eyes will deceive you. Trust your sense of touch. Yep. Trust it more than your eyes. Don't necessarily not use your eyes, but trust your touch more.
1: That's it. And if uh, there's only one piece of advice I can give is that most beginners, when they start making knife handles tend to make them way too Mm chunky. They tend to be very large, very wide and very square and too long. Yeah. So you want, you want something that's ovate or at least taller than it is wide (laughs) because you want to be able to align where the edges. So you don't want it to be round. You don't want it to be square. You want it to be, ovate or, you know, faceted in a way that allows you edge alignment. And I'm
2: going to say something very brave and very controversial. Four finger grooves are never okay. No, I agree.
1: Never. They are terrible. I they, don't any, give a any damn. Any knife with, the f- with finger I, grooves just I, looks I, ugly.
2: I hear you, listener. That one guy. I hear you saying, but, 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 no buts. It's never okay. Don't do it. And don't be like that—that that guy that everybody's seen in that group who did five finger grooves.
1: Mm. Just don't be that guy. <laughs> that is. Oh, but that means you can choke back on the handle for, that for is, like extra leverage with dropping. Because you would think that would be one worse. It's not. <laughs> it's like fifty worse. <laughs> it's like fifty worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, at the end of the day, handle design is going to come down to personal. Preference and personal personal experience, and um, it may be a video that I do in the future. Maybe you want to do one as well, Alex. Because we'll yeah, well, Sam and I have very
2: different, it. very different looks um, yeah. in our handles, which is you know perfectly fine because every knife maker does and should. Um, yeah. That's so- one of the
1: ways that we you know mark ourselves out as unique.
2: Yeah, well, Sam's knives are, you know, he follows a lot of classic designs from history and, um, like, especially with his buoys and that, they're very sort of Wild West sort of <laughs> looking. Um, and, and following that ABS journey, there's a style to that, um, hmm. whereas mine is kind of weird looking and organic. So it's kind of those two ends of the spectrum it might be worth doing a, a you know, two-part video thing. Yeah so absolutely there you go rich you might get more than you bargained for with that question (laughs) thanks rich and our final email question is from soggy bottom forge hey joe how you going he says hey guys love the podcast and you guys rock so the other day i got a new anvil with quotes around it Um, (laughs) New to me (laughs) and, And I'm getting ready to build a stand for it Similar to the one Sam did for his new anvil My question is Would it be better to have straight legs At a slight angle Or have it slightly curved I have these hitches that I'm going to cut The crossbars off to use for ledge Uh, for legs and was wondering which ones would work best my thoughts on the curved ones would be to have it come out from the anvil at an angle and then curve down to a straight up and down what do you think the anvil is a 450 pound hay button that i basically stole the price was so good considering anvil prices these days thanks in advance soggy bottom forge well, thanks for writing in. That sounds like a beast of an anvil. I did actually look at the photos that he sent. Yeah, it is. It is huge. pretty
1: big. Yeah. So I'm going to jump in before Alex does, because Alex is the physics nerd and he will tell you that straight legs are going to be better. Um, <laughs> I, I will say, because, <laughs> you know, curved legs have uh, a pre-curve in them. Therefore, they're more likely to bend in that direction. Um, the, the thing is, is, that if they're strong enough to hold up a 450 pound anvil, it's probably not going to be an issue. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'd, I'd say six or one uh, half a dozen of the other, but I will leave it to Alex to give you the actual scientific reasoning. The funny thing is,
2: um, I recently built a stand for my anvil, um, as some people would have seen. And when I went to buy the steel for it, um, I, I got RHS that's like... 30 mil square RHS. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like making conversations like, oh, what are you going to make for that? And I said, oh, an anvil stand. And he goes, this isn't going to be strong enough for that. So you would be surprised. It, it's, it's, you build it right. You brace it right. That thing will hold up five of my anvils mm-hmm. with me on top. Um, but when you're dealing with a 450 pound anvil, there's one major issue that you've got to deal with. It's not so much if you've designed, if you brace the legs of your anvil stand correctly, the bend won't actually factor as much if you put the brace in the right spot. And by brace, I mean the connection between the legs. Yeah. Um, a, lot I, a lot of people, a lot of people, I see. Between me,
1: my legs is the floor. <laughs> yes, because they're all bolted to the ground. Well, that's it. Because you
2: bolted, you have created cross leg braces and a lot of people Mm -hmm. i see make anvil stands don't put cross bracing on their legs yeah Um, i've seen that and that's that is actually a problem for the downward force that the anvil puts on the work it means that all of the force and i actually went into this same phenomenon with my press video Uh, the anvil is exerting downward force but because your leg is kicked out at an angle it's a torque force that's going to be happening at the weakest point which is the weld but as mm-hmm. soon as you ap- apply cross braces to the legs, all of that force is now redirected away from the torque point. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have bent uh, like an arch essentially across the, uh, underneath the base of the anvil, then going down to straight legs, you're not really going to see too much problem with the downward force uh, because the torque point is actually going to move into the curve of the leg. The problem that you're going to run into is... Tilt. Mm. You do not want, and let me stress this just a little bit extra. You do not want a four hundred and fifty pound anvil tipping over on its stand no. while you're working on it. Um, and if your legs are going to actually go straight up and down, like you said, like it sounds like it's going to curve out from underneath the base and then go straight, those straight up and down legs are going to pose a tilt risk. Yeah. Um, whether you've got four. Or three or six. It doesn't matter. Um, Straight up and down legs on an anvil stand is a bad idea. You need them to be tilted outwards uh, at an angle in order to create central stability. Because basically when you think about it, uh, think of each leg as a tower. Mm -hmm. If you you start pushing a tower over because it's leaning, it's going to start moving in the direction of its lean. So if you have each of the legs all falling into each other... But, you know, they're stopped because they're all welded to the top plate that the anvil's sitting on. Basically, it means that the whole stand is trying to fall in on itself. Like a which, teepee. Like a teepee. So it's not going to fall outwards as readily if you get the angle right on the legs. Uh, anything over an angle of about 25 degrees um, should be fine. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, the the more severe the angle, the more stable it's going to be. I understand. But it's also the more pain in the ass to the legs. More of a pain in the, the way. ass. So you need to try and find the uh, find where you're going to put your anvil. Like my anvil is set up between two other stumps because I don't need to walk around no. my anvil the way that I work. But if you do need to walk around your anvil, having legs kicking out either side uh, is going to be trip hazard. It's going to be a pain. So it is going to be a matter of your work. But I would personally, for 450 pounds, do a 30 degree minimum angle. On mm-hmm. straight legs that are braced or bolted yep. to the floor, which is the same as
1: bracing it. Um, yeah, and I mean, the, there is the argument, of course, that stumps are straight up and down and so are wooden posts and stuff like that. So, mm. therefore, they've got that tilt risk as well. The the other thing you've got to remember is weight. Mm. A steel frame is actually normally going to be lighter than your uh, standard stump. Yeah. Because, you know, it's hollow for the most part. Even my steel stand, which is, you know, 12 mil, uh, hundred you know, like it's quarter inch thick, four, four inch by four inch <laughs> in an angle iron. It's still lighter than my old stump was. Um, and so, therefore, it's going to not have a low center of gravity because the anvil's on top of it. Mm-hmm. And with a 450 pound anvil, that's even more of the case. Yeah. So... With a stump, you're lowering that center of gravity a little bit by having the extra weight. But a lot of stumps tend to be set into the ground in most shops anyway. Yeah. Uh, I very rarely these days see people with stumps that just sit on a concrete floor because that's a really good way to have bounce... Uh, that makes your anvil shift all over the shop no matter mm-hmm. how heavy it is. Mm-hmm. Ask me how I know. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't have a big enough stump, mate. So uh, That's it, yeah. But, um, no, like if you're going to make a steel stand, which, you know, uh, there is nothing wrong with a steel stand and you'll have Hundreds of people, and I know this from personal experience, hundreds of people tell you that steel stands are completely fucking useless and they're really loud <laughs> and they're, you know, their stumps and all that kind of stuff are so much better. Don't listen to those people because they're all idiots. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> hey,
2: on the internet, opinions are like nipples. Everyone's got at least two and a half of them are useless. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> but no, if you're going to make a steel stand, brace it and uh, pad the bottom of the feet uh, but, yeah, ideally you'd want to bolt it down.
2: Well, padding the bottom of the feet is going to be dependent on the floor of your shop.
1: True. If you've got a dirt floor, it doesn't really matter. No. You can't really bolt it down to a dirt floor anyway. No.
2: And um, the, um, everybody knows the little physics feature of three-legged stu- uh, stands that they don't wobble. Mm-hmm. Um, they also pose much higher tipping risk when you put a very high center of mass. Yes, so Which is um, why my mind is bolted to the floor. <laughs> exactly. So if you, going back to the fact that that is a four hundred and fifty pound hay button, mm-hmm. um, any tip risk is something that you just, re- just. I cannot stress enough that you have to take that into consideration. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Go take it seriously. Go take the time to measure it, or make a four legged stand that has adjustable feet, mm-hmm. uh, and then you can. You, that they don't wobble either. <laughs>
1: As long so, as it's adjustable.
2: Yeah, if you've got adjustable feet on a four-legged
1: uh, stand, that, that won't wobble if you adjust it. So, yeah, I, d- I didn't want to take the time to make adjustable feet, and I also didn't want to have to bother with, you know, like trying try to level around out my ground. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just just some things to consider in. We
2: did have a look at the anvil. It looks like an absolute gorgeous piece. Um, very envious. And if you ever mm. want to deliver it all the way to me, I would be glad to take care of it for you. Yeah. <laughs> Just subtly. <laughs> so, hopefully, that has answered your question. Yes. Which, of course, brings us in to Tool Time. Tool tie. And today's tool time is coming at you thanks to the handsome and wonderful fellas at Nordic Edge, hosts of the Australian Knife Making Awards for 2021. Be sure to visit nordicedge.com.au to stock up on all of their delicious knife making goodies. And if you're an Aussie, be sure to join the Australian Beginner Knife Making Group on Facebook to take part in this year's competition. And this week's tool of the week is a steel. It's a steal of the week. We haven't done one of those for a while, Sam. No, we haven't. It's true. And you have been playing with a particularly unique steal this Very week. Very unique. Sent Very to you by
1: unique. Yamez. Yamez, our, our <laughs> uh, good buddy over in the States, who has also been on the show. He, he has. He was one. Of, I think he was our first interviewee, I think. No. No? Roy, Roy was our first. Was he first? He was. Okay, there you go. All and right. then we got like him second, back.
2: Then. And then we had to get him back again because he didn't <laughs> record properly. <laughs> That's
1: right, yeah. Um, but yeah, so the steel is Atlantic 33. Um, now, some people will know it as Flutagon. Some people will know it as A33. Um, but it is all the same stuff. And it's made by the Atlantic Metal Company, the Atlantic Steel Company. Uh, over in America, and it is one of the only steels that I have ever come across that you cannot find the chemical composition of. Um, Atlantic is very secretive about its chemical composition, uh, of the chemical composition of any of their steels. So it is a little bit of an unknown as to how or why it reacts the way it does. And tell them
2: about that reaction, because it is... When you told me, I couldn't believe it.
1: Yeah, so Atlantic sells A33 as being the no-temper steel. Uh, It is specifically labeled as a hot-working steel. Uh, It's a through-hardening hot-work steel, but it requires no-temper and a water quench. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is the strangest material (laughs) to work with. Now it is labelled as being lower carbon or a lower carbon alloy, so therefore there must be some kind of fancy alloying content going on that allows it this no temper quality. Uh, as, w- as to what that is, I couldn't even begin to guess. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a very expensive alloy. This material, um, it, it's you know, it, it is ludicrously expensive, but. Um, for a good reason, because it is an incredibly durable material for both hot work and cold work in, uh, cutting and punching applications. And, um, I, from what research I have done, I have done quite a bit of research trying to figure out what the hell this stuff is. (laughs) Magic. Because it is magic. It is weird and wonderful, and I don't know how to feel about it. Um. (laughs) terrified, that's how you should feel making a hammer out of that, water
2: quenching it not tempering it and hitting things with it
1: yeah, yeah, and uh, Yarmus actually has several times made uh, hammers out of A33 there are a number of people who make hammers out of A33 and it apparently does just fine uh, it also makes apparently great struck tooling. Brent Bailey makes uh, a lot of center punches out of A33, um, as well as John Ragoni from Goni Ironworks has made uh, center punches and hammer eye punches and stuff like that out of uh, A33. So it is definitely a usable material, and it definitely works the way that they intend. So I can't say that the uh, that they're you know blowing smoke when it comes to how it's heat treated. Hmm. Um, but not. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Um, now one of the things that, one of the selling points is of course that you can use it for hot work and when you when it gets red hot or um, you know orange hot when you're drifting something you can just quench it and go back to work. Quench it in water, it rehardens and you go back to work. <laughs> and because it's no temper steel you don't have to worry about over hardening uh, because it doesn't need does, tempering. Does it have a particularly low Curie temperature or uh, no, actually it's got a quite high Curie temperature. Right. So, um, the, ter- the hardening temperature as recommended by Atlantic steel is actually between 1650 and 1950 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, uh, around about 850 to 900 degrees Celsius. They're a little bit higher so, than usual. Yeah. So about 50 to 100 degrees higher than, than your standard steel. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is, uh, you know, it is, as I said, a water quenching steel, which you can quench in clean, cold water, not preheated water or anything like that. Not a mank tank. No. Well, you can quench in the mank tank if you want. It said clean. (laughs) I did. I did. (laughs) Um, it did say clean, cold, yeah, yeah, but it doesn't really matter. My mank Um, tank gives off a smell when I quench things in it. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, now, the, the interesting fact about this material is that below about uh, 1550, uh, sorry, not 1550, uh, about 1750 degrees Fahrenheit, or uh, around about, you know, uh, well, what do I say? Like 900 degrees Celsius, thereabouts. It is incredibly hard, right? Like, it, it's like hitting cold steel. But the moment you get it to that yellow forging temperature, you know, up in the you know over 1100 degrees Celsius thereabouts it is butter to move it's like forging wrought iron um, it is insanely easy to forge and uh, so yeah I the the small piece that I got from Yamez I actually ended up turning it into a part of it into a jeweler's hammer uh, and I he treated it as recommended and it came out glass hard uh, I reckon it's probably sitting at around 55 56 Rockwell. Which is what Atlantic says that um, A33 regularly hardens to. Which is a perfectly good working hardness for pretty much all struck tooling. And I'm actually thinking it might be able to hold an edge. So stay tuned to my YouTube channel because I'm going to be making uh, both an axe and a knife with A33 for the cutting edge. Because you can. uh, Because I can and because I want to. Because I want to figure out what this kind of stuff can do.
2: I'm really excited to hear how that goes.
1: Yeah, I'm 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 keen as I'm going to get started on it next week. So um, yeah, no, it's it is a very very interesting steel, and it has been told it has been said that it can be case hardened. Uh, you can use case in it to increase the hardenability, but of course, if you do that, you are going to have to draw a temper because you're increasing the carbon content, and therefore mm-hmm. you're increasing the, the you're decreasing the ductility at high uh, hardnesses so yeah um i don't know why you would bother honestly <laughs> with, given this material um but yeah it is a fan it's a fascinating material because it is so uh mysterious the the uh, i i really want to know what the alloy is i uh, mean
2: to know what the carbon content is
1: yeah, I'm very tempted to take this to my material testing centre and Ooh. have them do a spectrographic analysis Find on it. out what the Colonel's the, uh, the <laughs> secret herbs <laughs> and spices are. I'm not sure if I'd get sued for releasing <laughs> the data, though. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so tempted because I want to know. <laughs> I might do it secretly and just, you know, kind of privately know from, from my own vindication. Yeah. Absolutely, but um, yeah, no. It's it's a very interesting uh, thing to work with, and uh, I haven't done too much playing with it because obviously I only have a very small amount of it. Although Yamas has told me that he can get me more if I want it, which I'm definitely interested in getting more. <laughs> <Because even laughs> I'm is, interested in having to play with that. It is kind of disastrously expensive, so I have to be worried. I have to be careful with you know wasting. Yeah, shipping and also wasting the material. So, yeah, I'm going to be very careful with the very small amount I have left.
2: I'm very interested uh, to see how it forge welds.
1: Yeah, well, that's that was one of the the questions that came up when I was talking to Yamez on the Blacksmith Church livestream. In that I was asking the question, how does it forge weld? And uh, the only answer they could give me is the answer that Atlantic says, is that it does not need um, preheating or post-heating when welded to other materials by ARC or MIG or TIG. So in the case of most high-carbon steels, if you weld to high-carbon steel, you need to treat that weld. You need to, you know, uh, post, uh preheat, post-heat, and peen the weld in order to make sure that it doesn't have a heat-affected zone and crack. They It doesn't have that problem in Atlantic 33. Hmm. Apparently, it, it requires no... Uh, Further treatment upon use in that kind of uh, aspect. So I'm thinking that that means that it's going to be relatively easily forge welded. But, open. <laughs> but that is, you know, you, you're talking about very, very high heats under, you know, extreme pressure from the uh, plasma. I'm interested to know if the alloying content, if the alloy portion of that steel somehow intrudes on the forge weld. I'm going to find out because I'm making that those two blades with it. (laughs) So we are going to find out very quickly whether or not it's forge weldable. Um, but I haven't heard of anyone doing it. I haven't heard of anyone forge welding a 33. So I'm very keen to get that underway because, uh, yeah, I really just want to see what this thing is capable of. Well, this will be happening tomorrow as of this episode airing, right?
2: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, stay tuned. Mm. So speaking of quenching and and all that good stuff, um, our topic of the week is a bit of a ranty one. (laughs) Because we have noticed, Sam and I, that many, many people seem to not have much of an understanding of thermodynamics that's going on in their forging, whether it's or thermo-
1: thermodynamics as, as a general rule, as a general rule really, <laughs> but yeah, uh,
2: but when you are dealing with the heating and cooling and manipulation of steel, thermodynamics or even a basic understanding of thermodynamics is almost essential to actually start getting good results. Mm-hmm. And so we want to have a little bit of talk about how steel heats up and how steel cools down. <laughs> Sam's probably going to use a lot of big words during this. Mm. I'm going to be the guy that talks in very plain language. Okay, so, so
1: to, to establish the laws of thermodynamics, <laughs> the first and second law of thermodynamics, the first law very simply states that you cannot pass heat from hot to cold. Oh. Right? You, you, from, from cold to hot, sorry. I was going to say. From a cooler to a hotter. You can't pass heat. From a cooler to a hotter. Um, it, the You know, heat only ever transfers from heat to cool. It can never go the other way. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics is that you can't... Uh, so, work is heat, and heat is work. So, energy uh, creates heat, and heat is energy. So, you know, like, pure energy is just pure heat. Uh, and it cannot be created, but it cannot be destroyed. It has so, to go somewhere. Yeah, it has to go somewhere, exactly. So if there is heat, it it has to be transferred to something because it's energy.
2: Now, I get the feeling that a lot of people don't bother learning about this um, because it, on the surface, seems like a lot of complexy sciencey stuff.
1: Yeah, wibbly wobbly sciencey stuff.
2: And so people don't want to don't want to know about it. But there are a few common. Uh, Factors that uh, mistakes that we see uh, that show that there's a l- complete lack of understanding of the why that's going on um, mm-hmm. that we want to we try and eliminate, frankly. I mean, we're
1: here to educate and we want to try and get that out there. And so... Yeah, if, if you're getting into knife making especially, right, or hammer making or anything that requires hardening material it behooves you to have at least the minimum amount of understanding about how hardening works. Like, the, the thing is, you don't need to understand the complex chemical structures of steel and, you know, the various phase forms and, you know, all that kind of stuff in order to understand how heat treatment works. But there are so many people that we've both run into, Alex and I, that have even not even the slightest understanding of how heat treatment works. And it comes, a across, it comes across. It comes across in the form of the the questions that we get asked
2: sometimes. It comes times across in videos that we see in techniques that people do. Um, and I was able. I've, I've been trying to think of ways that I can simplify it so much because I, I get it. It's sort of like when I start. I started talking some maths in my <laughs> Twitch stream the other day, and people just you could. I could see the eyes glazing over through my screen. But it, mm-hmm. it, it gets a bit like that, especially when you start talking about physics. Um, mm. So, I, I, I tried to avoid getting into too much physics in my last video, but I could tell I was boring people before I'd even launched the video. Um, but I was trying to work out what's the simplest way that I can explain what has to happen in order for a quench to occur. And what I broke it down to was that It's about the speed. It's about controlling the temperature you get the steel up to and the speed at which you get it down to your bottom end temperature. So there's three factors that you have to consider. There's what temperature are you getting it up to, what temperature are you getting it down to, and how fast are you making that transition happen. So when we see somebody dip their... Knife into the the quenchant for two seconds, and then pull it back out again, so they get a nice big fireball. Yeah, it's nice and dramatic and exciting and everything, but you're actually stopping that cooling process by pulling it out of the oil, and that shows me when I see that that you don't understand that simple fact that you are getting it up to a temperature and then bringing it down to a temperature in a certain space of time. Now, knowing what temperature you get it up to is going to depend on the steel and knowing what temperature you want to get it down to is going to depend on the steel and there's very readily available information about how to do that but in a any sort of sort of backyard home setup the one that you have the most control over here is going to be how quickly you get it down to that temperature and this is why we talk about preheating our oil because if you put a say 850 degree knife into room temperature rice bran oil, um, that's going to make it reach the room temperature at a, a, a much faster speed then it's going to be with a... Oh, actually, no, it's a slower speed, isn't it? Is that, uh, yeah, because
1: uh, heating oil actually improves convection. So. Yeah,
2: so it's thicker. So you've got to think of the, the viscosity of the medium that you're putting it into. That's why there's um, you'll notice that a lot of professional-grade quenchant oils are actually uh, more viscous, uh, less viscous than um, something like canola oil.
1: Yeah, like Parks 50 basically pours like water. It's like water, yeah. yeah. Um, And Uh, and it's it's one of the reasons why when I uh, talk about normalization cycles, I stipulate to cool in still air. Mm. Right, because still air provides a pocket of air around the blade, which insulates it, which means that the cooling is slowed.
2: It also doesn't blow on one side of the knife more than the other.
1: Also, also true, but waving the blade around or, you know, having a fan blowing it on or something like that will increase the cooling process, which is something we don't want to do during normalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will also provide uneven cooling, but, you know, you're not providing that still atmosphere for it to do its cooling and have insulation with the oil, on the other hand. What ends up happening in room temperature oil, very thick, viscous oil, like slow-moving slow, te- slow moving oils or rice bran oil, that kind of thing, is that it creates a jacket of superheated oil around the blade, but that stuff has to heat up the oil around it, but the oil around it acts as an insulating layer, which means you're actually trapping superheated oil around the blade and slowing the cooling mm. at that stage, whereas heated oil, because it's less viscous, it's, it moves freely it convects away from the blade as it boils and fresh oil can come into contact with the blade to cool it so and it's why
2: why in the past we've talked about the size and shape of your quench tank as well like if it's really really narrow that's actually going to cause problems because the um the newer oil can't move in as
1: readily exactly but um, one of the one of the more commonly held uh, misconceptions that I've come across uh, in questions to me about heat treating was everyone learns about the Curie temperature. Or everyone learns about critical temperature at which steel becomes non magnetic. Hmm. And a lot of people, when they start bladesmithing, seem to think that once the blade is non magnetic, that is the temperature at which to quench. Which is the not it. Well, yeah, it's close to that, it, but it's not. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not only is it not quite true, like, if it, it, the point at which uh, steel becomes non-magnetic is actually about 50 degrees Celsius below uh, the optimal austenitizing temperature for most simple carbon steels. But, not only that, but steel is non-magnetic at any temperature above that, uh, above that Curie, Curie temperature. Mm-hmm. So, you can have a billet that is close to melting, and it will still be non-magnetic. Mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it doesn't remagnetize magnetize after the Curie temperature, <laughs> right? Like, it, it's non-magnetic at all temperatures. So, therefore, I see a lot of people stick their blade in the forge, especially coal forges and ch- charcoal forges when they're beginners, and they pull it out and it's bright orange or even yellow, and they test it with a magnet, it doesn't stick, they stick it in the oil, because mm-hmm. they think, non-magnetic, it, it's good temp. The, the fact is is that you know you're you're shooting for just over non-magnetic you're not shooting for non-magnetic because that is any temperature and it's above wh- it's, why, it's uh, 40 wh- 50 F.
2: why in my videos and I, um, I think in your videos too we both um, uh, advocate creeping up to the temperature mm. and checking it regularly there seems to be um, having Involve myself with a lot of beginners through lessons and things. People seem to be terrified to pull their blade out of the forge and have a look at <laughs> what's look going at on. They think, <laughs> yeah. "No, I must keep it in there. I must, and if I don't pull it out and it's not bright orange, then it's I will I will screw it up somehow." But that's not the case at all. Um, yeah. You should be pulling it out and checking, pulling it out and checking it because, in uh, as we've talked about, the ambient light in your forge is going to dictate what color you actually see the eye is Mm. not as trustworthy as you'd think Um, I have been in situations where it almost looked like a black heat when it was
1: non-magnetic well, yeah, in, in direct sunlight, anything below, you know, like high forge welding temperatures looks black mm. because it just, the, the the ambient light just kills it.
2: And this isn't the sort of situation where you can just put it on, you know, shade it with your hand and have a look <laughs> at it. It's not quite like that. So you should, I mean, if you're going up to a quench temperature, you should do it at a gentle pace anyway. You shouldn't be r- jumping Very the gentle. gun on that. You should be nice and slow with it. So take the time, wait for that curie temperature to reach you should check it and then put it in for 10 more seconds and then pull it back out and you should notice oh it's starting to get a bit you will get a sort of transition point where it's just barely feeling like you can feel the magnetic temperature there that's when you start paying attention
1: yeah exactly the amount of videos that i've seen of people heat treating blades and they end up melting the edge Mm. getting it to heat treating temperature well, that's, an-
2: that's that's another thing of thermodynamics. The thinner parts are going to heat up heat faster, faster than the thicker parts. So if you're exactly if you are constantly overheating the tips of your knives, heat the tang first, mm. and then yeah, rotate time, yeah. rotate it around. Then hold it by the hot now hot tang with tongs, and then yeah. start heating the rest of the blade. And watch that tang that has been preheated will act as a heat reservoir, and actually. Mm-hmm. Even out the heat throughout the entire thing, and you won't burn your tip off.
1: And this is especially important on integrals and large knives, mm. where they have large ricassos. The ricasso is a very large, thick piece of material, much like an integral bolster or guard. You need to preheat that area, because it will not heat with the rest of the blade. That's right. And what you end up having is um, on integrals, I'll see a lot of the time that there's a hardening line right next to the bolster because the bolster did not heat up enough to quench. Yeah. And that can be a real bad thing if you're making it out of Damascus because then it won't etch the same as the rest of the blade. So you have to be aware of keeping that bolster hot first. And then get the blade hot,
2: and which is why having something like an acetylene torch in your forge is quite handy. If you're, especially when you're working on something like an integral, uh, you can really focus the heat in that area. If you've got, you might have a bit of a dodgy forge that doesn't, you have a hard time getting nice even heats or spot heats on things. Um, So, Mm you know, little tricks like that can help your uh, up your game a little bit more. Um, Another thing that we see a lot of is when you. Have You know, I, I I often make the joke, and I use this joke because it sticks in people's brains. It's the only reason that I use it. When you're quenching, hold it down under the oil until the bubbles stop, like drowning someone. <laughs> exactly. When you pull it out after the bubbles stop, it will still be smoking. Mm-hmm. It will still be damn hot, and you still don't want to touch it. No, no. That is not the time to be laying it on your anvil and file testing it. No. What I like to do is I clamp the very end of the tang in a vise, and then I just leave it in still air just to sit and cool. Yep. Wait till all the smoking stops until I can touch it.
1: Yeah, and and like we said, uh, like I've said in previous episodes, I believe uh, you have about eight seconds after uh, after a six to eight second quench. You have about eight to ten seconds where the blade is still austenite, mm-hmm. right? It is still transforming into martensite. And so therefore, if you final test within those first 8 to 10 seconds, it's still going to be soft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to leave it at least 30 seconds in order for it to have completely transferred into Martensite. And that's why like, I, I quench mine and I'll just leave them in there. Uh, you know, not even till the bubble stop. I'll just leave it in there until you know I feel comfortable. <laughs> I, I like to pull it out because
2: I like to see whether or not I've got a hell of warp. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, well it gives you the
1: opportunity to fix warps if you've got one.
2: But I mean that that um, what Sam says is right. I mean it's a, it's a good really if you are going to be pulling it out, it's a good rule of thumb to just wait until you can touch it. Mm. If you can touch it, you're pretty
1: you're pretty good. Yeah, just don't drop it. Because, <laughs> just don't you know, drop shatter. it. <laughs> Whatever you do, um, and, if you've done your job right, it'll shatter.
2: And then it comes to the materials that we make knives out of, and a common one is Damascus. When you're putting a large lump of Damascus, big stack in there, and you're waiting for it to get up to a welding heat, have to understand that the outer outside of that billet is going to get hot faster than the inside. It's going to get hot before the inside. Have you ever cooked meat in an oven? The outside yeah. of
1: it crisps up and gets all brown, but the inside's still raw. So, And that comes down to the thermal conductivity of the material. Hmm. Right? Like um, when you heat up a bar of copper, for instance, if you had a, b- a long bar of copper and you stuck one end in a forge, the end that you're holding would eventually get very, very hot. Hmm. It'd be <laughs> very uncomfortable for you. Whereas with steel, we know from experience you can heat, the end of a bar of steel up to melting temperature and the end that you're holding will still be cold Mm -hmm. because it's incredibly poorly thermally conductive and that's the same with flesh when it comes to cooking a roast in the oven there's very bad thermal conductivity don't
2: don't call it flesh if you're talking about cooking it
1: (laughs) eating dead flesh you're Stomach is a graveyard for all of the dead animals that you have ever consumed. Is this your revenge for me calling it vegan knife making for so long? (laughs) No, but um, (laughs) anyway, no, like, so, and that's one of the reasons why a Damascus billet will take so long to get up to heat throughout the billet is because the outside will get hot, but it's taking a long time to conduct that heat through the rest of the billet.
2: It's why it's a good idea when you're first heating a Damascus billet to put it in when you start the forge and slowly, Mm -hmm. slowly bring it up to temperature.
1: Yeah, let it come up to temperature with the forge because that way it'll be more likely to be at temperature when it's there
2: it's why there is a and don't have it in the blast of the jet um no but don't do that it's why there's such a market for slow cookers out there
0: Mm -hmm.
2: or you know have you ever gone to texas barbecue like (laughs) briskets you know low and slow low and
1: slow yeah the lower and slower the better
2: and then all of a sudden you realize that it's the amount of time it takes from the, for the heat to transfer from the outside to the inside is about the amount of time it's taken to get the billet up to temperature. And a really good way to test this is to simply move the billet in your forge. If there is mm-hmm. a shadow on the floor, like a cold spot where the billet had been sitting, the core of that billet is not at the temperature that your forge is at precisely simple as that really it's it's yep. it's a nice easy thing to do you don't have to understand any of the math any of the physics <laughs> just move yeah. the billet and look for the shadow yeah.
1: this is how to basic <laughs> yeah that's right and then you throw the billet around and sm- <laughs> <laughs> has this ever happened to you <laughs> just like stumbling out of the oven with a, with a billet of damascus Um, No, so... And then the next thing that we come into... And this is something that I've actually had more than one person ask me about... Is tempering. Mm. And I've had more than one person be confused about what tempering does... And how tempering works. And these, these people have approached me... They've asked me why I temper at such a low temperature... Because they thought that made the blade softer... And that the higher the temperature in tempering the harder it gets, Mm. (laughs) which is the exact opposite as any of us who actually know about how steel works is the exact opposite of how that works. (laughs) It's like, and so it's interesting to me that, you know, that there is that basic misunderstanding of the very simple ideas of heat treatment. I had one
2: person say that they had accidentally realized that they had tempered their knife at a hundred degrees and not 200 degrees. Um, and they wanted if they wanted to know have I ruined it <laughs> no you have not no just throw it back in <laughs> it's little things That's like true. that that make me think well you've got to understand why you're doing it don't just blindly go along and do these things if you're going to learn something like knife making when you learn a step learn why you're doing that step you don't need to learn the the deep science I mean, there's whole textbooks on how heat treatment of metals work you don't need to know that but you need you do need to know the basics of what's happening with each of the steps in order for you to be able to actually correctly
1: do them mm, yeah exactly right and we we preach about know the why all the time to the point that it's probably getting irritating for a bunch of people but <laughs> the, the fact is that it is super important you know that there is nothing more important than knowing the why hmm because at the end of the day, if you don't know the why, then you'll never work out the how. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you, you, you might know the how as in you'll copy someone else's, but unless you know the why, you won't actually be able to recreate what they're doing. Because you're not trying... Um, actually, Ford Hallam, um, you know, my inspiration from of the week um, multiple weeks ago, uh, has always said that you don't try and copy the ancients simply seek what they sought yeah right and and that i love that phrase because it is true you're not trying to copy someone's work you're trying to learn what they learned yeah and the best way to do that is to work out the why <laughs> mm. i mean why am i doing this
2: and, and you don't necessarily have to go through failure to have that where well, you have the internet now you don't have to quench a knife in water and then have it shatter and then think oh why did that happen and then do months of experimentation to work (laughs) out why it is you can you can learn you can go online you can find videos you can find sam's videos sam has some excellent videos on heat treatment uh Mm, and i have an old playlist and you can ask these questions and try and find out the why not ask why did this happen uh and then just ignore all of the answers because they sound too technical Actually, if this is something that you want to do regularly, take the time to learn at least a bit of what's going on. Like that, uh, the quenching that I was telling you. You don't need to know any of the math. You don't need to learn that you're rapidly cooling the steel through its eutectoid point. Uh, you know, the the point at which the austenite becomes unstable. You don't need to know this. You just need to know that you're going from the top temperature to the bottom temperature within a certain amount of time. And if you know that that's all you're doing, all of a sudden you're going to stop pulling it out to get the fireball. You're going to leave it in there for the appropriate amount of time. You're going to start preheating your oil. You're going to start making all of these thought processes before you do the action because you know ultimately what you're trying to do is get it from
1: this temperature to this temperature in a fixed amount of time. Yeah, exactly. You don't need to be a metallurgical scientist in order to pull this kind of stuff off. Exactly. But what I do advocate for is learning how to practice the most, you know, finite of martial arts, right? It is the it is the pinnacle of martial arts. Google Foo. Right? seriously I, I have no issue with answering questions right like I love questions I love answering questions but don't come to me with problems come to me with solutions right I've worked for multiple bosses in my time and one of my favorite bosses was, that was his favorite phrase the first day I came to him with a problem he's like okay what are we doing about it and I had no answer because would normally I'd go to my boss and go this is the problem and they'd come up with a solution for me But in this case, he was like, no, I want you to work out what we're going to do and then come back. And I went and I worked out a problem. I worked out a solution to the problem, came back and he went, "Okay, I agree with most of that. We're going to make these changes and we'll go with that. And then every time after that, he'd go, what's your solution? That's what I want from people who are asking questions. I would much rather someone come to me with a question and say, hey, Sam, I've heard this, this and this, and I'm having trouble working out which one is true or you know i've read this in this place and i'm just wondering if this is factual or should i do this i love that because it means that you've done some (laughs) research right like it means you've tried to find the answer on your own and just need clarification but if you come to me and go sam why (laughs) why why knife why why knife how do you
2: how do knife
1: (laughs) indeed um, you know, it, I just I don't want to answer the question because it's such a nebulous answer. <laughs> people don't email me
2: with questions anymore because I keep getting hitting them with the "Well, you're asking the wrong question." The question you want to ask is blah blah blah, and then they're like, "No, that's too
0: much."
1: Was it, yeah, I, I um, It was a warm have... summer's evening in Greece. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I I have taken to starting to link people to videos now. I'm like I. I have a finite amount of time on my hands. I'm a professional bladesmith who works for himself. I am my only only employee. I have very limited time on my hands. And if the people aren't going to be willing to take the shortest amount of time they can to even search for an answer before they come to me, I'm not going to take the time to explain things to them. Sam and I both have a deep love (laughs) of people who want to learn. Oh, desperately. I love people who want to learn. So you know, please my don't take thing.
2: this as us saying that we don't want people asking us questions. We love people who want to actually figure out the why. Yeah, we yeah, get, no, we get genuinely That's excited when people want to learn the why.
1: Alex and I love when we get an email that asks us a question we've never even thought to answer. Mm. Like we go, oh my God, yes, we haven't. Why haven't we talked about this yet? Oh my God, let's and the, do it. I mean, you guys have all sat through things that
2: ended up essentially becoming the topic <laughs> of the week. <laughs> yes,
1: uh, And that's because we love answering questions We love helping people learn We love learning ourselves um, But that doesn't happen If all you want is for us to hold your hand And basically walk you through the whole thing for you Yeah, um, show you, you what know. to do
2: And not why to do it Exactly,
1: yeah we're, we're not here to try and tell you How you need to go about things We're telling you that you need to learn Why you're doing things Uh, And yeah, I just, at the end of the day, never stop asking questions because that's the most important thing you can do. Asking questions is important. Don't become an ask hole and, you know, ask the questions and then don't listen to the answer. But don't come with problems, come with solutions. And I will forever say that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So we are in a new month, as you may have noticed. We're a Mm -hmm. week into a new month. And that means we have a new Forgecast challenge.
1: It's a good one, this one.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty fond of it. It's one that I, I, I came up with on a whim. And I, I threw it past Sam, fully expecting him to go, that's a silly idea. But he loved it too. <laughs> um, so this is not a sponsored challenge. This is just one that I think you all need to do. Now, everybody in every craft, not just blacksmithing or bladesmithing, but... It's it, it's it's also pertinent to this. Everybody who has any sort of workshop of any kind and has been spending any amount of time in there has in there some little change that they really need to make, and they keep saying, "I got to get to that. I got to get that thing. I got to get that tool, or get that item, or do that thing, or clean that space." Or there's there's a little there's a thing somewhere.
1: Yeah, I got to make that set of tongs to hold that stock yeah, that I've been putting like, off for ages. It's like
2: that's I'm always shitted off by the way that I store my pin stock for knives. It's all just in that <laughs> tub of P- that bit of bit of PVC. They're all just lumped in there together. I really need to sort that out and have an organizational system for it, something like that. Or I really need to sort out my hand sanding paper because it's all just lumped together with a rubber band around it. It's you know, mm-hmm. do the challenge is do the thing. Whatever yes. that whatever whatever that thing is, you know what it is. Don't don't give me that look. You know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it it doesn't have I wanted to point this out because it doesn't have to necessarily be something that is serious. It
1: could be something that,
2: it could be something silly.
1: And it doesn't even have to be big. It could be simply that you haven't cleaned your workshop in a month and there's shit everywhere and you've been putting it off and putting it off. And now you just need to take that day, clean your workshop. Well, the thing with
2: the thing that inspired this for me was me building my little assembly station for folder
1: knives. That is an awesome little assembly station. I have to say it's super cool. I'm jealous.
2: I've used it almost every day. It's great, especially now it's got proper lighting in it and everything. I've got one of those little uh, little mats, you know, the rubber mm-hmm. craft mat things in there. That's yeah, um, it's great. I love it. But I did that after struggling for like eight months like yep. trying to find the space to do things and that space was covered in like bandsaw off cuts and everything you've probably <laughs> seen them in the background of my videos my workshops are sty, but i needed this, i needed this permanently clean space for doing folders because my folders are getting more and more intricate and there's more and more pieces and i've got my cool assembly mats now which you can buy at nordicedge.com.au and mm-hmm. um, I needed a place to be able to sort of spread out and do that. And I did it and I felt so much better for it. And I've used it ever since. And I'm like, this needs to be the the challenge of the week, not to build an assembly space, but to do that thing that you've been meaning to do. So now, just to highlight the fact, well, Sam, what what's your thing going to be? Because yours is well, probably going to be serious.
1: I've done multiple Uh, things recently that have fit this bill. Um, my work to workshop table in the, uh, engraving room has, I've had it since I was 13 and 13 year old me really liked knives. And this table was a chipboard table with a rubber coating. Hmm. And I spent a lot of time as a 13-year-old cutting pieces of that rubber coating off this this table. And uh, yeah, it was slowly falling apart. And so I actually purchased a piece of uh, laminate laminate spotted gum to make a tabletop. And it sat in my shed for like a month. (laughs) (laughs) And I finally got around to mounting it to the table. So now I have a new fresh spotted gum tabletop that I that I can use, and it's something that I had been meaning to get around to for ages, and had finally taken the time to get around to. Um, but also, I've had my shitty Ryobi drill press for a long time, and was never happy with the fact that all of my drill uh, my holes were always off by you know a several degrees, <laughs> varying degrees depending on how much time I spent in setup. And so I decided to get rid of that and get myself a decent drill press. And so I did. I got myself a nice, big, single horsepower, uh, 16 mil chuck digital drill press. Um, you know, that, that kind of stuff has been, you know, my, what I've been trying to do is tool up and clear up my workshop, you know, get myself a kiln as another thing that mm. I've been meaning to do for a long time, but hadn't taken the time to do, um, But again, that's monetary stuff. As far as making things, I needed a set of tongs to hold small stuff. And I'd been fart-assing around with every other set of tongs I had to avoid making that set of tongs. Mm. Eventually, I just went, screw it, I need to make this set of tongs so I can do this. And so I did. I spent a day, I made the set of tongs. And now I have that set of tongs and I don't have to do it again. So, you know, like I've done multiple things recently that, that could fit this bill. So, Sam's things are very responsible um, and and (laughs) serious.
2: My thing is really silly, but I wanted to actually tell you guys what it is because I I want you to know it's okay for it to be a silly thing as well. Mm. I I look at my phone way too much, and I've been Mm. trying to cut down looking at my phone uh, because I don't like the fact that I'll just find it in my hand. It's like that was in my pocket. I didn't even consciously pull that out. Um, But one of the things that I look at my phone for, which then leads to me using it more, is looking at the time, checking the time. So I Mm -hmm. wanted to have a clock on the wall of my workshop. And I have a really love of cuckoo clocks. (laughs) I love them. Everybody else in the world seems to hate them. (laughs) I I love cuckoo clocks. (laughs) I love a good functional (laughs) cuckoo clock. Uh, So I've been meaning to put a clock in my workshop for... Two years, you know, I've had this workshop for two years, and I'm like, <laughs> I need a clock because I know I'm gonna. I, I need to check the time regularly, so I need a clock. But I thought, if I'm gonna get a clock, why not get a cuckoo clock? So mm-hmm. I've decided I'm gonna. I'm on the hunt now for a cuckoo, a good cuckoo clock. You know, functional cuckoo clock with a working cuckoo, yep. um, and to have in my workshop to meet, show that I don't spend as much time gawking at my phone and don't have as as much of an excuse to do it because the time will be on the wall and I'll be able to mark the passage of time by the soft cuckoo um, of the cheap cuckoo clock that I'll inevitably buy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it can be something silly, but if it means something to you and it's something you've been meaning to do for your workshop, do that thing and then tell us what you did and why you did it with the hashtag ForgeCastChallenge. Indeed. Because we want to know. We want to know what's, yeah. what's that little thing that's been nagging at the back of your mind.
1: And if you haven't already followed the hashtag ForgeCastChallenge, if you don't even know that you can follow hashtags, if you type in hashtag Forgecast Challenge in the search bar in Instagram, it'll actually tell you that you can follow the hashtag. Mm. Do it and use it to encourage others and to help encourage yourself to do this stuff. You know, like... Get the thing done. doesn't matter what it is. Get the thing done and encourage others to get the thing done.
2: It's a strange phenomenon that we'll have these things but not do them.
1: Oh, man. And we know full well what they are. (laughs) So (laughs) many. And they're they're so simple. Like, you know, you know that it's only going to take half an hour, maybe an hour to do it. And yet you put it off and put it off and procrastinate and do everything else you possibly can Mm. (laughs) rather than do that one thing. That's it. Now is the time. Do now it for us, guys. do that thing. Do it for the Forgecast.
2: Do it for the Fudgery
1: <laughs> Merch now available at Valhalla Ironworks right. Redbubble store. <laughs>
2: All proceeds go to the Forgecast. Speaking of my Redbubble store. Um <laughs> yeah, you can find him there. Uh, well, before we get to that, if you guys have a question that you would like to email us, uh, send it on through to ask.forgecast.gmail.com. And if you would like to find Sam, where can they find you?
1: You can find me at Samtown's Bladesmith on every platform except Twitter and TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> so YouTube, Etsy, Patreon, Redbubble, Instagram, oh, I don't know, the kitchen sink. I'm, I'm there. Twitch, yeah, I'm on Twitch. It's the only T platform I'm on. <laughs> um, where can they find <laughs> toy's book. Where can they find you, Alex?
2: Uh, I go by Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram, YouTube, Patreon, Redbubble, Twitch. Oh God, I don't know. Just Google me. All the places. All yeah. all He's of like the places. I used to be on TikTok, but not anymore.
1: <laughs>
2: I blame Niels for that. Yeah. That ill-fated adventure.
1: Oh man, the amount of blacksmiths moving onto TikTok recently, it's been crazy. It's,
2: yeah, it's not, it's not a healthy platform.
1: No. It's not well, good.
2: It, it has a lot of issues. No. <laughs> I won't I get into heard. it here, but it's 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 not my cup of tea. I'm no. sorry, guys. I'm just not, no. No.
1: No. <laughs> Computer says no.
2: But you know what is my cup of tea? Sleep. I'm going to go do yeah. that.
1: <laughs> you know what's my cup of tea?
2: Cup of tea? English
1: breakfast. Uh, right. I thought I, I would have picked you as a Hlybos man. Rubus? Uh, nah. Rubus is my stepmom. No, actually, you know what I would have picked you as?
2: One of those people that has the you know, the the double-walled glass teacup. <laughs> that you pour hot water into, and then you drop the little f- dried flower that opens and blooms in the water, and you do, it, do it in you, know you do it in so the well. you do it in the glass <laughs> teacup so that everybody can see it happening. And you just look around, mad dog, and everybody as they're looking at your tea as it's that is unfurling. that is my
1: dream. Unfortunately, getting blooming getting blooming <laughs> flower tea is really hard in Australia. <laughs> I have looked. Yeah, I, I like th- my fruit teas. Damn it. I knew My sweet it. hibiscus teas, love it. I even tried to get a glass teapot for a while, but yeah, they're, they're hard to get.
2: I'm sorry, glass
1: teapot sounds like a sexual position. <laughs> right up there with the dirty Sanchez. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Hot lunch. Mm, that- she likes that. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, with that being said, (laughs) I think it's time for us to go now. I think Alex needs to take his meds to go to bed. (laughs) That's enough, Grandpa. (laughs) Uh, Alright, see you guys. See you later. (laughs)